0: Mike Duffy called them the Boys in Short Pants. And either they're both boys and girls, because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 81 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 82nd episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. I'm Ethan Rainbow. Thank you, you're very prompt on that today. <laughs> Usually it's a, it's a little more like We're, I have to, we, we have to guess. prompt you along. Yes, and we have a guest joining us today. Dr. Paul. Many last names, middle names. Thomas. Uh... I sort of just call you P.E.J. Thompson in my head, or Thomas, rather, My mistake. I could go by Thompson as well. Thompson as well. <laughs> you're not picky, yeah. like uh, the, the Thompson and Thompson kind of, uh, sure. the, no, it the works. Tintin characters. Um, yeah, so we have you here today. You're uh, a professor at Carleton uh, of, our, of our late parish. Uh, alma Mater. <laughs> yes. Uh, yep. The uh, the MPM uh, program, the Master of Political Management, for those of you unaware, uh, and also at Samara. Uh, yep.
1: The Samara Center for Democracy. Thank you. Yeah,
0: uh, of which we've had uh, Jane Hilderman on in the past. Uh, yeah. which was which was fun a couple of years ago to talk about the, the annual democracy report. Uh, but we want to talk to you today about sort of your roots in uh, in academic study of parliament, which is interparliamentary groups and uh, sort of what parliamentarians get up to when they're not in the house, not at committee, not in the writings, uh, yeah. and presumably not at the bar. Um, though, so, you know, You never some, know. some, some, I've mentioned hosting arrangements are quite flexible. Yeah.
2: So let, let me start off with an example here. And I picked just sort of an MP, a backbench MP. Uh, he's a conservative, Jamie Schmally. That's um, how you pronounce that, eh? I'm, I'm, a, I'm not, okay. I'm not sure to be honest. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm sure you're not. Schmally. <laughs> um, who, ha- Schmale? Who has a number of these or who is a, a, member. a member or director in a number of these. So. Anything from the Canada-Africa Parliamentary Association, the Canada-Japan Interparliamentary Group, the uh, Canada-Europe Parliamentary Association, the Canada-Ireland Interparliamentary Group, the NATO Parliamentary Association. Um, Most people will not be That was like maybe 20% of what this guy's a member of, (laughs) just for for listeners' (sighs) sake. There are a number of others, and most of these are never in the news, and sort of your average citizen isn't really aware of them. They sort of have more of a resonance with sort of the lobbying and the diplomatic community yeah.
0: Or people on House of Commons email lists
2: um. because you will get like <laughs> a thousand of them every week The only example I can think of one of these sort of making the news was when uh, a conservative Well, a liberal then-conservative MP was being Silenced uh, Ousted from her position on the Canada-NATO Parliamentary Association and there was a rounding uh, song of Barrett's privateers, I believe, and some yes. and some vodka or gin drinking by conservative staffers. Yes. Um, but aside from that one incident, these generally aren't you know visible to average Canadians. So can you say like what the difference is between all
1: of these and what they're really about? Sure. So. It- it's funny that's uh, not the finest moment uh, uh, <laughs> that you recall there. Um, so these actually go back uh, almost a century to the, something called the Commonwealth Parliamentary Association. And it was this idea that there's legislators from Commonwealth countries. Maybe they could learn from each other. And so that was begun, um, and then Canada eventually joined an older body called the Interparliamentary Union. Same idea, parliamentarians from different places around the world could get together, share ideas. As time has gone on, um, this has been expanded with groups that focus on particular countries. Um, so you have, say, the Canada-United States Interparliamentary Group, uh, currently co-chaired by Wayne Easter. Uh, and he... friend of the show. Um, He has been really active uh, throughout the whole NAFTA negotiations going down. And part of it comes from a realization that in other jurisdictions, legislators matter more than they do in the Canadian context. So who is it who's currently holding up the ratification of NAFTA? It's not necessarily Donald Trump. It's going to be the US Congress. And if you want to engage with them, it's a lot easier to have members of parliament or senators go down and engage as peers. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a parallel body in the U.S. Congress that sends people up here, exchange ideas. There's even provincial level ones where so it's a long, deep rabbit hole once you go <laughs> down this. But there's a lot of collaboration between the legislators and um, provincial assemblies and state assemblies on, say, border issues, water issues, things that you might expect. Um, what's interesting is that the, the list uh, that Etienne was reading off there is really just the tip of the iceberg. So Canada is a very different place than the United States or the United Kingdom because we only keep track of a very small number of these groups. Uh, I think it's 16, and we, all of them are sort of country to country or sort of multilateral associations. Whereas in the United Kingdom and at the U.S. Congress, they have registries for a much broader range. And so we have these kind of groups and you can kind of divide them into two categories. One is about policy issues. So Canada has had a parliamentary steel caucus since the 1980s. Um, In the 1980s, we also had, um, and it's sort of a footnote on history, but a parliamentary friendship group uh, for Soviet Jewry who were trying to bring... Members of that community to Canada due to persecution and what have you. Uh, in the 1980s, or sorry, 1990s, when there was uh, retaliation um, against Canada through the Helms Burden Act, there was an all party sugar caucus. Um, uh, yeah, I, the existence of the all party sugar caucus made me look up the fact that Canada has a sugar industry, period. I remember No, this that. is, yeah. uh, it, it surprised me, other than maple sugar. Um, it turns <laughs> sugar out in Beats. fact. Come you on, know, guys. It's a... Um, and so it's, <laughs> but the real growth of them have started in the last few years, and so you've started seeing um, not just for industry groups like say steel or sugar, but also subject matter ones. Mm-hmm. So there's an all-party climate change caucus, uh, an all-party oceans caucus, um, outdoor you,
2: recreation, outdoor yeah.
1: The outdoor one is an interesting one because it tends to be very heavily skewed towards the the hunting and fishing. Yeah, making smaller things dead through (laughs) this field of outdoor activity. And so it's fascinating. They hold a shooting day every year. They take MPs and senators out to the range, um, which is not... Every now and again, the Hill Times or something does coverage of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But so if those groups existed at the U.S. Congress or the British Parliament, they would be registered because most of them are supported by outside actors. Mm -hmm. So you have... Um, the Federation of Anglers and Hunters may be supporting the Outdoors Caucus. Um, you have the Canadian Steel Producers Association supporting the Steel Caucus, so on and so forth. There's a Health Research Caucus supported by Research Canada. There's a Diabetes Caucus supported by Diabetes Canada, so on and so forth. But what the money that pro- comes from these groups pays for is events. Yeah. And so if you want people to come to an event to hear a speaker, to learn about an issue, it really helps if you have wine. Um, (laughs) some
0: food especially if it's free
1: yeah and so it often can become part of the message so for example the oceans caucus events had often sustainably sourced seafood as sort of a showing that you can do this sort of thing Um, or say for example the the Canada-France to Parliamentary Group, you better know where the wine that's served at that event will come from.
2: The, the Canada-Belgium one, the Taste of Belgium event was one that I often enjoyed attending. And yet it's all yeah. from Anheuser-Busch,
0: uh, Anheuser Anheuser Bush. which yeah. is not exactly like cream of the crop stuff. Here. You know, the, the brown Lafayette. They're, they're the not flying brown... in the... Uh... <laughs> the
2: Lafayette Brune is still very good.
0: Yeah, yeah. they're not flying in the Lambics for this, sadly.
1: No, and it, it, what's interesting... So most of them just are very informal but every now and again you have a group that makes a more concerted policy push Mm -hmm. and so a few years ago you had something called oh gosh the Parliamentary Committee on Palliative and Compassionate Care and this was an all party group of MPs um, started around in the 41st Parliament so circa 2011 who were really concerned uh, that if legalized uh, medical assistance in dying became legal in Canada We're not going to be ready because we don't have palliative care as a credible option. The Mm -hmm. choice people are going to be presented with is a long, horrible, painful death or medical assistance in dying. Probably we could guess which one they're going to take. And if there was a sustainable palliative care system, that might be another. And it actually expanded then into a broader study on seniors and healthcare dignity and various things and suicide prevention. Um, The end result being, though, that they traveled, they pooled their members' office budgets, traveled the country, held hearings, prepared a report. Um, It led to private members' uh, bills and motions, and it was quite a coherent strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, In the 42nd Parliament, um, Sonia Sidhu, a member of Parliament, was chair of the Diabetes Caucus. Um, She similarly uh, traveled the country, held consultations, produced a report on diabetes care, as a member of the health committee, she suggested that there should be a study into diabetes care, which then produced another report. And so you can see these things moving um, the discussion along. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah. And, but the main thing out of this is we don't have as clear a tracing of the money, whereas sure. in the UK, we would. Yes. And that, that seems good. Yeah. yeah. Or even just <laughs> knowing that they exist. And this yeah. is so one of the things. That, yeah. That's a big one for me um,
2: because of my work from time to time. Um, you'll engage with a stakeholder and sort of I mean sometimes from them or otherwise you find out of the existence of one of these things and it's like who are the members well we don't really know we have to go to ostensibly someone who we think might be the chair and sort of ask them if they're willing to share the membership list because there is no uh, formal formal aggregation of this I know the Hill Times puts out something of uh, a record keeping of it but even that's I think far from comprehensive and a lot of them are rather informal, but within them, as, as you alluded to earlier, there's a formal class um, that is supported by
1: Parliament with parliamentary dollars. Yes, and so this is something, Parliament has a body that almost no one ever hears about called the Joint Interparliamentary Council, or JIC, and it is a rare joint body of the House and the Senate that manages a pool of funding that goes to support um, these 16 groups that are in some way supported. And even within that category of 16 groups, um, they're divided into tiers. So we have funding for big multilateral associations like the Commonwealth Parliamentary Association, International Parliamentary Union, um, the Assemblée Parlementaire de la Francophonie, so on, Canada, NATO. Um, But then there's ones for major world powers, so Canada, China, Canada, United States, Canada, Britain. And then there's a weird subcategory that only gets administrative assistance, but no travel dollars. Um, mm-hmm. And those are the ones for Germany. It's the G and then the three I's, Italy, Ireland, and Israel. Yeah. Um, those groups are in a better place still, because then it means that every other country in the world gets nothing. So it's only if, say, you happen to have a friendly sponsor that's willing to pay for you to travel to, let's well, say, Greece or Taiwan or the Philippines or where have you that you can actually sort of undertake excursions yeah um what it also means is that yeah there is this question of is there or is not it's very informal and so sometimes you get mps who will claim to be the chair of a group without nece- necessarily having ever gone through an election or any other process it's hmm. just they notice that no one else is the chair of the group. <laughs> and so they're like well i you know, find, now finders now, keepers. Yeah, um, um, no so, one's telling me different. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but as uh, Laura said, there are a lot of emails that go around Parliament there saying sure like, are. we're going to have the inaugural meeting of the Canada-Albania friendship group. Anyone who bothers to show up, please, you know, you are now the, you are now the, uh, the members and you can vote and what have you. Um, what's fascinating now is that there's, a, so most other countries provide zero funding whatsoever. Yeah. So in the United Kingdom, the only one of these groups that gets any money whatsoever, and it's a bit contentious, is the Group for America, mm-hmm. um, the, the uh, Anglo-American Parliamentary Friendship Group, as it's known. Um, here, it's a bit weird that we have this, some get money, some don't. And it creates a lot of animosity because other people will say, well, why not, why not Brazil? It's a big power. Why yeah. are we funding something for Israel, but not Brazil or South Africa or whatever? Um, and this year, there was actually a bit of a challenge. So... Canada is home to both, um, the All-Party Women's Caucus, mm-hmm. which is a caucus of women parliamentarians, but is not to be confused with the Canadian Association of Feminist Parliamentarians, who may not have found the All-Party Women's Caucus to be feminist enough, and so have established this body. And they petitioned this joint international um, Joint International committee, JIC, uh, or joint international council, sorry, to give them some funding, saying, we are a group of, we meet the other criteria, why can we not have access to this pod?
2: Mm-hmm. And so
1: it's something that, I, so far as I know, the request was turned down. I'm intrigued to see what happens with it going forward, because this two-tier structure or three-tier structure, depending on how you evaluate, is sure. going to become increasingly hard to maintain.
0: Yeah, it does seem weird. and it, it seems like it's very hard to answer a question in a way that actually makes sense about it. It's one of those things where it's like, yeah, it just is that way, I don't know. And uh, there's not like a, doesn't sound like there was a real, like, no one s- sat down and was like, okay, so what's the like rational way to do this? It was of an outgrowth of existing stuff and lobbying and not yeah. really uh, considered
1: Well, the last process. one I think that got funding was the Canada-Africa Parliamentary Association mm-hmm. in 2003. Right. And the idea there was that rather than having separate groups from like Canada-Nigeria, canada Ethiopia, we'll do Africa. And okay. we'll try to. And it also goes well. I get the
0: sense it's not something we would do with Canada, Europe,
1: for instance. But <laughs> well,
0: so there is a Canada, Europe. There, there is, but, but there are also so, yeah. yeah. But
1: there also are yeah. You know the ones for what? For, Ireland, for, yeah, Germany, five France, other European France, countries: like, Germany and. within Africa, there's interparliamentary friendship groups. Yes, for yes, yes. All of them. any number of
2: countries, right?
1: And so this is where it gets challenging because the there's a, a tension between the two sides. One group. Wanting the the I guess the the people holding the purse strings would mm-hmm. much rather like it if you could consolidate and also try to do delegations that visit multiple countries at the same time. Sure. And so this is the I can so, see why yeah <laughs> yeah um, and to be fair the Canada Europe group um, oftentimes it'll be a joint thing between NATO the Canada NATO group will then partner with Canada Europe to do something and combine it with a bunch of other things to get you know, some measure of value for money yeah. um, but then it, the difficulty though is that one of the reasons these things exist um, beyond the practical diplomatic side that I mentioned is also because it's really big domestic politics yeah. so there is often fights over who gets to be the chair of say the Canada Philippines Parliamentary Friendship Group if you happen to be from Winnipeg or from other communities, it's a big deal. You can say, I'm chair. Or if you, you know, for the Armenian community, for the Hong Kong community, for so on and so forth. The Ukrainian one is actually also quite contested. Yeah. Um, it's something where you want to be almost as narrow as possible. And we even have them for different groups that are not necessarily in possession of their own country. Sure. So there's the uh, Parliamentary Friends of the Kurds. Um, there are the there was a Canada Tamil Parliamentary Friendship Group, and again because of different diaspora communities that are looking to be mobilized, and yeah. so domestic politics certainly mixes in with this at the same time.
2: Yeah,
0: Taiwan, I guess, as well, is a big one, yeah.
1: very very well funded. Yeah, yeah.
2: Can I pick on the uh, the diplomacy element of it for a moment? Because sure. sort of at a high level, we think of diplomacy as in the purview of the executive, right? Um, Global Affairs Canada, that is definitely what they were telling. Our citizen philosopher kings. What we've sort of been discussing is the implicit idea that these parliamentarians from uh, the Senate, from opposition, and from the government benches are engaging in diplomacy in some way. Yeah. Um, but this is diplomacy in a different track than ties into sort of executive diplomacy in Canada. So what exactly is the diplomacy that they're conducting when they go to any of these
1: countries, really? So, I mean, there, I guess there's two or maybe even three levels. So some of it is an effort by... It can be done in conjunction with the Canadian government.
2: Na, so NAFTA being a good example. NAFTA, I was
1: going to say, NAFTA is perhaps... And also um, there was... A, Bit of that as well around the negotiations for CETA, the agreement with the European Union, okay. where certain member states were perhaps more resistant than others to ratification and trade rules and what have you. <laughs> the, the, the balloons, yes. Were per I, I don't believe we do have a friendship group specifically for Balonia, but not yet. Uh, well, give it, yeah, give it time. Um, but so that can be uh, set up in a, in a strong partnership. You can have. Officials from foreign affairs providing briefings, but the main idea is that for various reasons of protocol, time, what have you, uh, members of parliament and senators can go places and perhaps have more informal conversations than is necessarily possible for foreign ministers. And the other element is that from a, if you're playing the long game, oftentimes the people who wind up as prime minister, minister of foreign affairs, cabinet. They're today's backbenchers, and tomorrow, you know, maybe they might move up the chain uh, someday later. Yeah. So being there to meet with the people while you're in whichever country is not necessarily a bad idea. To you know, put in a good word for Canada, perhaps pass around some maple syrup or what have you. Yeah. Um. So those sort of the relationship-building things. There's also just a genuine desire among a lot of MPs to learn about policy issues, and so often you will see. Okay, we've learned that Britain has a innovative way of dealing with this problem so we want to go and learn about this particular way that they're dealing with it that can be of value as well again trying to get more of a policy transfer sort Mm -hmm. of thing and you also do see that with some there's a whole bunch of international networks of parliamentarians on specific issues so there's an international network of parliamentarians on Mm anti-semitism there's an international work network on climate change Um, Another one on uh, religious freedom. And so these MPs get together and do that sort of thing. Um, Then there is also, unfortunately, the issue where sometimes other countries are more... It's the reverse lobbying. It's using Canadian MPs as brand ambassadors to further the interests of that country back to Canada. Mm -hmm. So some countries are much more aggressive. um, And just if you look at the list of sponsored travel, which is something published by the ethics commissioner that lists who has taken trips... Um, Taiwan, Israel, um, to some extent, Armenia, Turkey are very active mm-hmm. at funding uh, Canadian MPs to go and learn about their country. Yeah, and some of it's it's marketed as cultural diplomacy. It's an exchange of ideas and understanding that will lead both cultures. But at the same time, it's also places that would want a continued uh, a certain relationship with Canada to continue. Yeah, and. So it's not necessarily a bad idea for them to build relationships with us if they want that. And so there's, um, there's been some good documentation of how Taiwan has very actively coordinated <laughs> this. Um, but also even, uh, so for example, the chair, former chair of the Canada-India Parliamentary Friendship Group, Patrick Brown, at various points lobbied for uh, restrictions on uh, the exchange of nuclear technology with India Arguing, you know, it was too restrictive that India yeah. had moved beyond, what have you. And so in that case, he was acting more as an ambassador for the interests of the Indian government. Huh. Perhaps. Yeah, SMC level,
0: let's let's be fair here. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, no, and totally. I mean, and this is where some of the idea like it He just gets, cares
0: a lot about jobs in Montreal.
1: It's I true. Mean, it's, no no a lot I mean, people I'm, in this town do. Exactly. <laughs> really? I mean, we what SMC Lavelin wants. Um <laughs> Leave that thought alone. <laughs> anyway, uh, what you do see, though, is this... Uh, it's more blatant, in part, because we know more about it in the UK. Yeah. So there was um, a whole series of reportings on uh, Saudi Arabia's man in the British Parliament. Mm-hmm. Um, there was investigative reporters who posed as um, a delegation from the government of Fiji that offered a British MP fairly large sum of money to set up a parliamentary friendship group for Fiji okay. and are in lobby for its readmittance into the Commonwealth following a military coup. Um, we don't we haven't had that kind of scandal yet um, hmm. that I know of but yeah. at the same time it's one of those things where because we don't even have a registry that the groups exist, right. you don't necessarily know where to look. Um, and there's various countries that we engage with or that there's parliamentary friendship groups for yeah. that may have particular things that they would like. And so knowing, knowing that balance and knowing how the exchanges go is something that the more transparency, the better, because there certainly is value um, to having an, a free exchange of ideas between parliamentarians from one country to another. But at the same time, it's tricky to make sure that it's all happening above board. And also, I mean, the, we saw a lot of this discussion about, um, say, John McCallum, when he was as ambassador, did he get a little too close to the perspective of the, the government that he was supposed to be? Communicating Canada's interests too, yeah. Um, and however you come down on that, it, it's still useful to know where our MPs are going, who they're talking yeah. to, and that sort of thing.
0: It's, yeah, and I, I think you've. In currently if I'm, I remember this wrong, I think you've told me a story before about the establishment of the Canada China Group
2: to begin with. That
0: was Canada Korea. Canada Korea. I, I believe. Group. The, okay.
2: There's an example in uh, a book about lobbying once upon a time called The Insiders. It's like the only book um, where he <laughs> recounts an anecdote. Uh, of, I can't remember which MP it was, but it was a Conservative MP who was sort of had a great title but not well regarded among caucus. And he was put on sponsored travel and given sort of the gold star treatment, uh, came back to Canada, established the Canada-Korea friendship group, and basically advocated for Korean issues until he retired.
1: So that actually made front page news of the Montreal Gazette, um, where it was... It was one of those rare finds that when I was going through the archives for my dissertation came upon and it was uh, they were lobbying very heavily to restrict imp- or reduce import duties on Korean cars coming to Canada
2: Fair. and so
1: that was uh, and it detailed the lavish oh, yeah. trips various things this was in the 1980s yeah. um, when there were still fairly strong protections on the domestic auto industry yes. um, but no and that was part of of a toolkit. Yes, and it uh, was a
0: hundred twenty million dollar value. I think you, you found right.
1: Yeah, no, I mean this Just was pretty
0: good value for money, right? You <laughs> yeah! fly out of Korea, you 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 know you take them around and you film the sites and you get hundred twenty million dollars in your pocket and at the end of the day. Pretty
2: and good. And there's something to be said for treating MPs as if they're let's say ministers um, when they go abroad. MPs in Ottawa, are... as, as
0: Pierre Trudeau has famously <laughs> yes.
1: said, nobody's a hundred yards off Parliament Hill. Well, he said he's, you know, in his defense, he said opposition members right. were no, but uh, which I think even it's really makes more worse. applicable to <laughs> yeah.
0: government backbenchers, frankly. Like yeah. in a way, it depends. Like who makes headlines more, right? Like if you're talking about being nobodies, like yeah. it's, uh, it, it, you know, it They always go. have the
1: dream of caucus. The caucus is where things will happen. Yes, yeah, <laughs> it, it can certainly go both
2: ways. Uh. Um, but the short version of it is, in Ottawa, MPs, while getting you know a, a fairly respectable salary, don't get many perks. No, yeah. um, Arguably, their only perk is the, the weekly flight back to the riding, um, which is perhaps not a perk. Ooh, you get to go um, home in, in many cases because <laughs> yeah. you know it's it's a stressful part of the job. Yeah. Um, but the sponsored travel and some of the things we've been discussing so far are one of the times where they're treated like a diplomat. Yeah, um, in a foreign country and they go and get to meet, you know, diplomats or important officials in a country and get sort of a taste of the treatment that ministers get when they go abroad. Right. Yeah. And also
1: most of them, it, it, we should note um, for our viewers at home um, that they get to bring their spouse. Yes. Also. And so it adds an extra element to yeah. it. It's it's not just a working trip, but often a bit of a paid vacation. Um, the one thing I will say <laughs> <laughs> in defense of these groups as well. So I should clarify. So that the sponsored travel, you usually can bring your spouse. The ones that are paid for by Parliament, you typically can't. Yeah, yeah, so that's taxpayers' money is protected in yeah. that context. You can't even bring staff on most uh, yeah. parliamentary trips,
0: which is sometimes an impediment, frankly. To the
1: yeah, many yeah. of them do get support. So they'll have maybe a clerk and someone yeah, from and the an library of Parliament. Yeah. Um,
0: that said, though, if you're... Yeah, and I think this is a separate, separate grievance or a bone to pick, but that's not really the same thing as having staff you know and trust with you as having yeah. like an analyst that can
1: give you the facts and not really anything else no they're, they're not necessarily as apt to give the spin no uh, maybe they, they should not really. relevant. <laughs> but yeah a lot of times though it, it is it is helpful to know oh I am meeting with this person who may have these leanings yeah. and being able to interpret it in a bit more partisan. they won't give you that yeah, yeah.
0: which is like, they're like yeah we've talked about Library of parliament analysts before in the show and like they're great but they're they're not Political, capital P political,
1: um, but yeah, it's it's a very different type of stuff you're going to be getting from them. I mean, the one th- other benefit, although I should stress, is that really Parliament, and even especially now that you have the new uh, temporary chamber in mm-hmm. Westlock, there's not many places for people to mingle across party lines. Mm-hmm. And so, one good thing about, especially the officially sponsored associations is that all of the delegations that are sent are in relative proportion to party status. Yeah. And so it is one of the few places where MPs get to actually know each other as human beings, yeah. which is can go along, and especially in a minority parliament setting, may go a long way to helping, you know, Smooth, soothe tensions, tempers, what have you. The difficult part is that a minority parliament is also when there's less likelihood of travel, travel happening. Yeah, exactly. Because everyone, <laughs> all the whips are going to be counting their fingers and hoping that, oh wait, do we yeah, have enough votes? Yeah, yeah. And all it takes is one party to say, oh, I'm not sending my people on that trip. And then it all crumbles. Yeah.
0: Paired voting has really fallen off as a... You uh, see one or two on a, any given vote. It's not really like a the dozen-odd it used to be.
1: Yeah, it which is it's... Um, something uh, that needs to be examined because especially for what it means for say women on maternity leave or sure. and on parental leave for that matter uh, or you now we have two cabinet ministers battling cancer. Uh, the paired vote system is odd. Um, and we haven't hit the depths that they've had in the UK where...
0: (laughs) Wheeling in people on (laughs) hospital beds. Yeah, (laughs) where there was, there was such
1: a decay in faith in the system that it, it quite literally against medical advice showing up to vote in parliament. Yeah. Um, thankfully, but still it's something that (laughs) we may want to find a a more formal system than just a gentleman's agreement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where, the one thing I should also say with the sponsored travel is that it's not just necessarily international groups. So say the All-Party Steel Caucus yeah. uh, took members on a tour, different steel facilities across the country. The all Party. I think when you've
0: seen one, you've kind of seen them all. I don't know. You know, I'm told there's a difference <laughs> between the ones that
1: make girders and the ones that make wire. Huh? But, okay. uh, you know, um, I'm not an engineer. <laughs> uh, in this, the, the Aerospace Caucus took people to Winnipeg, to Montreal to see different things. Yeah. And it so there, sounds a well funded one, too, there. The yeah, low yeah. Earth
2: orbit trip is still in the works. Yes, yeah. I can only,
1: you know, when, if it worked for Guy and La Liberte, then hopefully the rest can get on Virgin Galactic and go see <laughs> that. But I am, uh, hopefully, there, I mean, and again, there's one thing that, you know, it is some challenging for someone who's maybe not from a particular part of the country to know the difficulties facing another. Sure. Um, that said, the MPs who get involved with these things, especially the aerospace or the steel or what have you... Are the ones who have it in their riding. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was funny when I was doing interviews for the dissertation, I asked, so the the other element is that there's often internal party caucuses that exist. So, for example, uh, when the Conservatives were in power, 41st Parliament, there was a Conservative wine caucus. And I asked why it wasn't an all-party one, and they're like, well, all the wine-growing regions have Conservative MPs. There's really no other... And they we are like... It was a very reasoned answer. Now it's, <laughs> a, now it's a parliamentary wine caucus. Funnily enough, the aerospace caucus that had been all party flipped to being more of an internal liberal one because yeah. they had all the places that made planes. Mm-hmm. And okay. so these things do go back and forth. Um, the parliamentary pro-life caucus has existed forever, uh, but is increasingly a conservative-only affair. Huh. Uh, surprising.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's the one where they, like, uh, show up in hoods, right? And, like, do the... <laughs> No, I'm sorry. Uh, not like, not that kind of hood. I just mean that they're secret.
1: So <laughs> I'll give you that it's secret in that uh, the, it is the only, ca- so if you were talking earlier about membership lists. Uh, the Parliamentary Pro-Life Caucus works on a non-disclosure arrangement so that anyone who attends the meeting, the other MPs are bound not to say who comes. You can self-identify as a member mm-hmm. of the caucus. So I think, like, Harold Albrecht had been involved. Rob Bernouche had been involved. Maurice Vallecotte. Uh, Jason Kenny, actually, when he was an MP, um, had all been involved. But, yeah, there were other members who just were never named. Right.
2: Well, <laughs> You thought I was saying a lot
1: worse than I was. Yeah. <laughs> to, to
2: bridge quickly from the... I think this conversation... I mean, I don't know which order we should have had these in, perhaps the other way around. <laughs> um, but to the conversation about... MPs just arrived in Ottawa for the first time. All all the new MPs, the 90-some-odd MPs who've been first-time elected, as well as all of their peers, came to Ottawa for more or less their first caucus meetings last week. Don't call it a caucus meeting. uh, Unofficial caucus (laughs) meetings. And did orientation. Um, there's, a number, there's a number of sort of civil society groups involved in orienta- uh, orientating these new MPs, as I understand it. What does orientation sort of look
1: like for MPs? So there's the, the official program put on by the House of Commons uh, has been completely revamped for this legislature, sure. or parliament, I should say, uh, in response to the criticism that MPs were given too much information too quickly and just couldn't absorb it. Mm-hmm. And the, so the, they've tried to rejig it around the idea that MPs have three roles. Uh, one as someone in their constituency who is needs to have an office and various things. Uh, one as the MP in the legislature, so knowing parliamentary procedure and what have you. And the other as the MP on committee. And so they're actually leaving the committee stuff until committees are about to meet. So that hmm. is ju- they just put a pin in that. That will come maybe January. On hmm. um, the argument that it's not... If they tell them now, yeah, it so it's just going to go. yeah, information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the biggest thing, I mean, it used to be organized around the various elements of the House of Commons. So you would meet with your human resources person who would tell you how you get paid and potentially how you would hire people. Then you would meet with a legal team that would tell you how you set up leases and employment contracts. Then the IT people would give you your phone, computer, various things. And that was really efficient for the House of Commons, but not overly useful for the MPs. So now I'm trying to group things together to think about more of the, the holistic role. Um, where it gets challenging is that a lot of it, you it's really hard to know how things work in practice. So we interview former MPs with Samara. That's one of the things. And one of the elements that came up was that standing votes. New MPs didn't really know how to do it because they had never, it was something that, isn't written down necessarily as well it's just a procedure that you gradually learn Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of those elements even whips lists aren't necessarily written down anywhere it's just you gradually figure it out each party has their own folkways so the house of commons orientation is the big picture of getting getting access to resources from parliament uh, learning the basic procedures but then parties have their own where they sort of Trying to think of a better word than indoctrinate, but um, they they get into the greater details as to how their own caucus will function, about how responsibilities will be shared, um, and that will become even clearer, I think, once say cabinet is assigned and once you have critic portfolios, you'll start getting even further down that line. But a lot of it will be right now trying to decide, say, common positions on particular issues. What are your priorities? And also, the first round of caucus meetings were taken up, as you said, with uh, the outgoing MPs were often there as well. Yeah. So there was, it's, they haven't fully transitioned to the, what are we going to be doing next? There's Mm -hmm. still a bit of, okay, what did or did not go wrong? I don't know if there's anyone who came away thinking everything went well from the last election. There's a bit of airing (laughs) of grievances that happens after
2: an election where people are basically given the opportunity to vent and say
1: say their piece, especially
2: if they were, uh, if they lost, lost their seats. Exactly.
1: And uh, so it'll be a very different dynamic when they meet again, especially now that we have a date, um, but with a clear idea of what the cabinet is, maybe policy ideas, it's going to be getting closer and closer to that actual division of labor, maybe talking about committee assignments or at least sending a wish list of what committees you want to be on into the WIPs, uh, and then coming out next, there will be the actual orientation for MPs as to how how to work on committees. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is going to be even more important this time around. Because it's a minority yeah. parliament, procedure will potentially make or break a government. Yeah, I remember because I'm of a certain age, back when uh, the Martin minority fell, and it was fascinating to see all of the different things that were done to try to find ways of moving motions of non-confidence. Like, say, putting a motion of non-confidence attached to a committee report, wondering if the the committee report then concurs the... If Uh, the House then concurs the committee report, does that count as the House voting for non... Anyway, these are things... How many Uh, angels can...
0: Well, and you would imagine, too, like, the the SNC-Lavalin sort of um, shenanigans with, uh, like, coming down to party-line votes on committees would look a lot different in a minority context. Like, it would be... uh, the very interesting things you can do
1: on committees with uh, minority control is, uh,
0: yeah. is no, going to be I interesting.
1: I mean, it that same minority was the last time that I know of. Maybe it's happened since. But the conservatives were really well-versed. They had a procedure advantage, for lack of a better term. Yeah. So in, I think it was 2005, Scott Bryson failed to show up at... Um, Oh gosh, I think he was Minister of Public Works, so whichever committee, Public Works, um, to justify the estimates for his department. Mm-hmm. And the committee amended the estimates to remove an amount equivalent to his salary from the budget, <laughs> just as sort of a way of saying, you know, that we're, we're paying you back. And it made it a bit of a news story that, but those are the things you can do once you have um, the opposition minority or majority on committees. Yeah. And so yeah, watching that space will be very interesting. I, I'm looking forward to it personally. <laughs> well, well no, 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 I think the justice committee will perhaps get an outsized bit of attention. Sure, and the ethics the committee others. and yeah. uh,
0: all the other fun committees that, especially the ones that are opposition chaired, yeah. because that will matter a lot more now.
2: It will, but it's also worth noting for for those with SNC fever dreams that the Bloc Québécois yes we'll not will not really want to go now hard, be hard on, on this. committee. Yeah, it's just generally well. speaking, the committees will be fun. Not we'll necessarily perhaps on this issue.
1: Align with the government more on some of those issues. Yes. That is, that is a fair point um, it depends on which which instinct happens to win out at that particular moment um, I mean one thing that is interesting as well the House of Commons is developing for the first time ever an actual house orientation for MP staff hmm. uh, which traditionally has only been done by the member themselves yeah or, and that yeah or, yeah or just like <laughs> I need coffee and various things you figure it out um, by dry cleaning I don't know where it is you find it um hopefully that will help and professionalize to a certain extent so that at least all the the staff are aware of their rights or yeah. and procedures sure. and what have you so sure. that
2: and i imagine some of that is growing out of the innumerable scandals that the house of commons and the senate have faced in the past few years yeah. particularly yeah. around the knowing the right rights of staff is, and
0: that is the important part because the from the job perspective every staffer's job is different yeah i would say like it really depends a lot on your boss and the other people in your office like, it, it's just, like, you can't have someone in the House of Commons administration teach a political staffer how to do their job, both no. on, like, a could and should level. Like, Well, it's I mean, there's certain a,
1: basic things, like, this is the Library of Parliament. It can give you yeah, information. Yeah. This is oh, the yeah, library. absolutely. So yes. those those sort of fundamental things, which yeah. members themselves may actually not know. Um, so that's going to be a change, which yeah. previously hadn't been there. The, the library and the House of Commons itself had offered various like drop-in information sessions mm-hmm. uh, they were seldom attended yes and because staff often had other things to do and so this would be one of those changes there is also uh, going to be so carlton university they have this thing called the initiative for parliamentary and diplomatic engagement mm-hmm. and so they actually offer another orientation to mps this happens in january And it is a crash course for new MPs on policy. So if the House of Commons one is about how do you get paid, how do you pay people, how does procedure work, this is much bigger about what are the macroeconomic challenges facing the country, what are the challenges facing the health system, what are the major foreign policy issues.
0: See that's interesting because I was actually just thinking about uh, talking about this is that during the last round of US congressional orientations. New, then newly elected representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez yep. spoke really publicly and candidly about the content of their orientation, Persians, much yeah. of which was quite ideological because it was it was Harvard putting on this sort of like, oh. yeah, it was quasi official, I don't remember the exact relationship but it was quite like, you know, yep. everyone went to this and it was very much like, deficits are bad, uh, raising taxes is bad, don't do that like all this kind of stuff with, right. with very much an ideological content to it and while I, I, our parliament, I don't think, like, goes in for that. Uh, at the <clears throat> excuse me, at the House of Commons administrative level, I wonder, like, for stuff outside, like, how much are civil society organizations, et cetera, sort of delivering this ideological content that they want MPs to have going into their jobs uh,
2: in these kind of months? There's almost a nice parallel there too, interparliamentary friendship groups and s- sponsored. <laughs> well, draft. no, I mean, yeah. and,
1: and so the the event that's put on by Carlton certainly does have sponsors. I yeah. mean, it's not free to put on sure, you know, a, a workshop, feed them, et cetera. And again, there's... I could probably guess a good chunk of the sponsor list, I bet. Well, it, I mean, <laughs> the one thing that is helpful is that it is run by academics. Yeah. So you're you're not literally paying for the right to say things, but there's, there's some quality sure. control there. However, it is also true that your logo will be in places yeah. as... Happens. Um, So the the civil society groups right now. I mean, I I know as I'm sure you do. uh, Various lobbyists who are in town trying to find ways of getting certain things into mandate letters for cabinet, and then also everyone's playing the game of who's going to have what ministry, who's going to be the opposition critics, and so a lot. There's a general delivery of content of wanting every MP to know why this particular issue is important, but then there's going to be a much more focused. Who are our key interlocutors on a particular policy file? And we're probably going to see a bit of movement more back to the House. Uh, a lot of lobbying had shifted to the Senate because mm-hmm. the Senate was had more independence, And yes. you, it's easier to sway a few independents to move an amendment uh, to a bill as compared to try to move a whole party caucus. Right. That might take a more collective decision. Yeah. Whereas now you might get the idea, especially that a, a majority if the opposition parties collaborate, there's different variable geometry of alliances. You might get things moved a bit more at the house. To what extent is an orientation? I mean, you may have some groups offering. Right now, I mean, one of the main challenges of trying to brief up MPs is that not all of them have offices. And so even just getting them their mail can be challenging and overwhelming because yeah. they don't have a place to keep it or read it or what have you. Yeah. Um, and so I think the really big push for trying to brief up uh, a within the, the lobbying government relations community certainly some general messages to mps now but especially in january once people have offices once the critics are known people are over the initial madness that will be the first throne yeah. speech to
0: Man, and the phrase government relations community just oh that's dark <laughs> 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 i'm just imagining people being like wow this is really an attack on the government relations community so what? bitter yeah. so bitter oh gross okay um i think that's that's gonna that that's we've, we've had a, a good uh good lengthy conversation and i think we'll we'll cut her there okay paul thank you so much for your time this was really really informative and i think a side of ottawa that most people never never see really uh, or hear about
1: well i so. mean you know the, the all i can say it listeners out there go get yourself elected and try out you know one of these trips <laughs> <laughs> the perks are great thank you very much
0: thanks so much cheers